A New Sermon on the Warpland, a poem by Algorithm. A nation of decolonization on ships, digging up any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm. A nation of grief in the cut, summoning any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm. A nation of old dispossessions, still fighting, conjuring any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm. A nation of furnace black, between Scylla and Charybdis, divining any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm. A nation of specific chains on ships crossing an ocean, summoning any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm. A nation of specific chains on ships crossing an ocean, summoning any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm. A nation of regulated fray, rioting, digging up any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm. A nation of old dispossessions in the ship's hold, unearthing any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm. A nation of sloppy amalgamations in the passionate noon, summoning any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm. A nation of revenge in a boiler, summoning any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm. A nation of Medgar Evers in front of a window about to be broken, conjuring any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm. A nation of old decapitations on ships crossing an ocean, digging up any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm. A nation of Medgar Evers in translation, striking matches against any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm, a nation of revenge in a string-drawn bag, striking matches against any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm, a nation of broken glass in front of a window about to be broken, hollering down any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm. A nation of antique light between Scylla and Charybdis, divining any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm. A nation of roots in the ship's hold, summoning any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm. A nation of roots in the rough season, divining any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm. A nation of old decapitations on ships crossing an ocean, striking matches against any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm. A nation of Medgar Evers in the rough season, striking matches against any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm, a nation of grief in the rough season, conjuring any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm, a nation of days of rage on ships, unearthing any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm, a nation of antique light on ships crossing an ocean, striking matches against any any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm, a nation of border burners in the warp land striking matches against any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm, a nation of decolonization in the passionate noon conjuring any
any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm. A nation of the targeted in a pearl, hollering down any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm. A nation of borderlands in the ship's hold, digging up any means necessary to refuse erasure by algorithm. is Queers at the End of the World, the podcast where in spring the trees release their nanobots, and all that technologically facilitated tree sex sure makes us sneezy. I'm your host, Nino. And I'm your host, Nat. And today we're talking to the poet, coder, teacher, artist, and ice climber Lillian Yvonne Bertram. And what you just heard was a new sermon on the Warpland. You can read a new sermon on the Warpland in its most sprawling and sublime digital form on Um, You can also read it in Travesty Generator, Lillian Yvonne's most recent book. Lillian Yvonne is an associate professor of English, Africana Studies, and Art and Design at Northeastern University. They've written several books, including Travesty Generator in 2019, Personal Science in 2017, a Slice from the Cake Made of Air in 2016, and But a Storm is Blowing from Paradise, which was chosen by Claudia Rankin as the winner of the 2010 Benjamin Saltman Award. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Liliana von Bertram. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. You got it. So your 2019 book, Travesty Generator, uses coding languages in the composition of poems. Mostly you're using Python, but also JavaScript and Perl. How do code and computational composition fit into your life story and also your life as an artist? That is a great question. It's interesting because in so many ways, code and computation don't don't fit into my life. They don't mm-hmm. have anything to do with like my trajectory. They're not things that I studied. I can present a picture of my life and my life as an artist without it. Mm-hmm. But there's also a way in which I can look at my life story and my life as an artist and see it as having been framed very powerfully by my relationship with computers. And, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. and this and, and, and this is where my relationship with computers is very personal because it has mm-hmm. a lot to do with my brother. And my brother, um, who today is like officially big in crypto, <laughs> like, <laughs> right? Like, you know, he kind of was the one in our family who knew about computers somehow. He always wanted to build things and make robots and was making little projects. Like, I don't even know where he got these ideas, but my my overwhelming memories of, of childhood in some ways are like him scavenging electronic parts on the side of the road and making robots and the two of us taking um, basic programming books out of the library and programming together like little things, you know, on the computer, the home computer, because, you know, there was only one. (laughs) There was the home computer and using it and programming just like little drawing programs and things like that. Playing games on the computer and fighting about playing games and... All of that stuff, right? Like mm-hmm. back in the day when like you could only play 1% at a time. So it's like my turn, my turn. Mm-hmm. Right. So like that's where coding first came into my life was like coding along with my brother when I was probably eight years old. 
maybe mm. 10. So that's kind of where it started. And then watching him do all kinds of stuff with building robots and like soldering and etching and making circuits and never having any idea what was actually going on and being fascinated by the simple parts of it, you know, just being like, you can wire something together where like you press a button and something lights up like that to me mm-hmm. was like the best thing in the world. And that's yeah. like all I, that's all I ever wanted out of electronics <laughs> in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. You know, like that's it. <laughs> that's all mm-hmm. I wanted was just to like something super simple, like an LED lighting up. I was happy with that. I was mm-hmm. so satisfied with that. But then like he kind of took that path and I sort of drifted away from it. I got into writing and, you know, he got into computers and robotics in a really big way, but I just didn't follow that same kind of trajectory. Mm-hmm. So for me, in, in as much as my upbringing was framed by the rise of the internet and chat rooms and internet cafes and gaming, I was never on the creating side of that. You mm-hmm. know, I was never programming anything. It's funny. I went to a tech school, but I did not study tech. I studied creative writing at a tech mm-hmm. school. And I was the kid at the tech school who worked like six different jobs all all around campus, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, to try and afford going to that school, which was the cheapest school for me, actually, (laughs) when like financial aid and everything was concerned. And it was still like a ton of money. Mm -hmm. And I wound up working in the human computer interaction lab, (laughs) (laughs) basically because I knew Spanish. And I was like working on using Markdown to create different morphological possibilities for like a machine translation program, which turned out to of course be funded by the DOD. (laughs) (laughs) So I was trying to like explain verb forms to like an HCI scientist who was trying to create like a border patrol. Whoa. Um, (laughs) But like, did I have any idea how any of this was actually working or being used? Mm-hmm. Of course not. So it was weird. Like I would just like show up at the HCI, do my work and leave and have no connection to like what I was actually doing. Only like 20 years later did it seem relevant to me that like this sort of like being influenced by technology and being in the periphery of like what technology can do and how it can like manipulate text it was like, you know, it was like the water that my little tugboat was floating in, but I, but I never sort of let go of my childhood dreams of being able to like make an LED light up. <laughs> and then, you know, it's so much of adulthood I have found is all about making good on things that you wanted to do as a kid, but couldn't. Mm. So fast forward many, many years to when I first start becoming exposed to, or I guess re-exposed to microcomputers and microprocessors through like Raspberry Pi and Arduino. And I don't even know how this happened, frankly. It's probably through my brother, you know, but I'm coming, I came back around to it and was like, oh, I studied creative writing, very innovative practices, um, a lot of experimental writing. And I knew that people were doing sort of like computational or data-driven stuff with language. And I had my own ideas, you know, in grad school, like, oh, what if you could do this? Or like, what if you could treat language and text mathematically? Mm-hmm. But I didn't have the skills to do it. I just sort of was like, there's got to be a way. There's got to be a way that you can divide a word just like you do a number. And like, mm-hmm. turns out there is, like, there is, but I just didn't, you know, I was walking around with these like big ideas in my head and no idea how to make them come to fruition. And the story I love to tell is that some beautiful sunny day, I walked outside my door and I live downtown in a, in a, 
provincial city <laughs> north of Boston. Um, and there was like a street fair kind of going on, um, lots of vendors. And one of the vendors was the local makerspace. And one of the things they were demoing was this fun Raspberry Pi powered um, banana piano. Banana piano? Banana piano. <laughs> it's what it sounds, right? Like the, the keys are bananas. <laughs> and you like touch a banana and like you get a tone from a speaker and I was just like holy moly this is the best thing ever like you know basically it was touch capacitive stuff Mm -hmm. um, where you could kind of create keys on anything in this case it was fruit and (laughs) you know I was just like this is amazing like I want to learn how to do this. Like, how can I do this? You know? And they were like, well, come on down to the makerspace and we'll show you how. <laughs> and which is exactly what I did. Amazing. Um, <laughs> did I end up actually making a banana piano? No, I did not. <laughs> but what I did end up making, I think my first major project, and this is where I became exposed to Python and through Raspberry Pi was I wanted to make a thing where I was like, I want to be able to press a button and like, I want like a poem to appear like mm. from a printer. And I saw that I saw this, like somebody do it on YouTube. And I was like, that's all I want. Like my, my goals have always been like super simple. <laughs> I want to press a button and have this thing happen, you know? So like, I'm like satisfied <laughs> very easily, you know, I'm like, yes, that's all I want. Um, and it took like many, many, many hours as mm-hmm. someone who is just like trying to figure out how this stuff worked um, to actually achieve that. And that sort of started me on this, this process, right, of, of, of using computation. But and it's a very circuitous route. So again, like there's one way in which I can look at my life and see it as framed by these, you know, instances of, frankly, like human computer interaction, mm-hmm. right? But also like the societal forces that did not show me a way that I could actually do this. You know, it was like, I did not see myself represented, right? Like Mm -hmm. in any of this stuff when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. And so I just didn't partake in it, right? Right. And I didn't see that I could be a creator in this way until much later, right? Because like, you know, I went to a tech school and it was like, well, it's always people who are, you know, like wealthier than me Mm -hmm. (laughs) or people who like, are from California (laughs) or, well, I'm not a white person. So so that's not something for Mm -hmm. me. So it wasn't until much later where I was just sort of like, well, now that I'm an adult and this is something that I could kind of do in the privacy of my home without feeling like there's people around to judge me Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, about my abilities. This is something I could do. That's so huge. Right. So that's like, that's like the short, long story (laughs) (laughs) of computational composition in my life. And that just has a lot to do with like being that last generation to kind of grow up pre-internet and pre-computer and to like have the computer, frankly, like dominate the experience of your life. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting hearing you talk about that because like one of the things you're saying about your approach to seeing these little systems is that you would see them and then come up with these really simple and concrete goals that you wanted to try to achieve with them. Like, I just want to turn on an LED or I want to be able to push a button and a poem prints out on a screen. And like, to me, that seems so situated in just a kind of mind or perspective that works well in being creative with technical systems. And I'm thinking about that because I teach interactive fiction. And one of the things I deal with a lot in that space is 
people coming in and having overly grand ambitions. <laughs> I'm going to make a metaverse, like virtual reality, thousands of chapters. And like, I hear in your story, you were like in the mindset that I find myself needing to teach students who come to these practices when I teach them, which is identify something concrete you could do, see if it's possible and understand how many hours of work and experimentation go into doing something small and concrete and then build up your creative practice piece by piece. Yes. I just, I just wanted something very simple, but that simple thing was also just like so Mm -hmm. magical to me. You know, I was like, I don't want to, I don't want a robot that's going to like lurch around the kitchen, you know, (laughs) like, like, you know, my brother was building stuff like that where it was like, look, you turn on the light and the robot starts to move like a a photovoltaic robot. And I was like, yes, that's cool. But I just want like, there's nothing more satisfying to me than pressing a button, like, like a a big clacky button and and something lights up. Like what more could you possibly want? (laughs) You know? Um, And also something achievable, right? Like Mm -hmm. I looked at the robot and was like, that is not achievable for me. I don't, you know, I don't know how to, you know, that's like, that's much too much. I just want this. I want to connect some wires, have it work and kind of be done with it. And I'm happy. And I'm happy doing that like a hundred times. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. Yes. Yes. Relate to that so deeply. I I feel like the there's something there. I mean, there's something there about poetic form too, like and the sort of pleasures of form and how it works. You know, like you write your 14 line poem and the last two lines do something different and you get this like, you know, the the volta is like this little light turning on. And I feel like if you're teaching creative writing, sometimes it's like a similarly technical question of like, look, if you construct the the thing this way, when you get to the end, you'll get this feeling. Yeah, <laughs> like this and light it'll will turn make on. you want to do more things. <laughs> mm. I certainly relate to what Nat was saying. You know, students were like, but what if I had access to this huge database? And like, right. yes, you can do all of those things. But there's also like great danger in that. <laughs> I have learned, mm. right? It's like simple tools are very simple, but powerful tools that you need to actually mm-hmm. like supervise. Well, I wanted to ask actually sort of a, a kind of a bigger question about these tools and one tool in particular, which apparently has gone fairly unsupervised out there in the world of the internet. Just thinking about some of the news recently and things that I've heard about AI and the developments of these kind of intelligent machine learning algorithms. Travis D. Generator, your collection was released in 2019, which is the same year that GPT made its way onto the internet. And GPT is this language model created by OpenAI that uses deep learning to produce human-like text. And I'm personally really interested in this for many reasons, creative and also (laughs) dystopian and apocalyptic. But I think since that time, people's fears surrounding machine learning and AI have really shifted, you know, over COVID and the way we've started interacting with the internet and AI has really changed since 2019. I feel like back then we were really interested in the idea of automation and robots taking away people's jobs. But now we've kind of arrived in this place where we're awash in the internet and the internet discourse. And there's a lot of fear, partly in my own mind, about this idea of an algorithm like GPT 
masquerading as a human voice with an opinion on the internet. So Mm. I guess like the idea of like a machine learning algorithm being able to automatically generate so much text feels like an apocalypse of the written word to me. But like, I also kind of feel like the human machine collaborations behind these models and the like human computer interaction collaborations that are part of digital poetics really complicates the narrative of machines overtaking us, like taking over labor, taking over media. I'm curious, like how you see your work in that context is some of the computational poetic stuff you do a response to these kinds of apocalyptic anxieties about machines, or maybe some other less commonly addressed anxieties about our, our relationships with computers. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the more that I work with computers and the more that I program and code, in some ways, like the less fearful I am. And part of that is just like, it does not work if it's not plugged in. It's it's super basic, but like, it's, it's true. (laughs) you know like you unplug you unplug gpt it doesn't work that's it and full disclosure like i use gpt2 as a compositional tool Mm. so even though it is like there are many many reasons actually to be concerned about gpt2 and 3 because it's proprietary machine learning you know it's one of those things where sort of like it's the hood on a car that doesn't open you know and you're kind of like well Mm. (laughs) like i know it's getting me around but I don't really know how. And if it breaks or something goes wrong with it, I have no way of like getting under there to fix it. You know, so it's sort of like, it's like that where you're just like, hmm. Because the code is not open source. Right. Certain parts of it are mm. not, right. But in, in some ways, like, I'm just remind, I always sort of remind myself, like, you know, if the transformer blows, like the thing stops working, right? It does not exist on its own in any form, right? At least it, this is how I sort of conceive mm. of it, right? And I also think there's a way in which people have been collaborating with processes Mm. for a very, very, very long time without these kinds of anxieties. And like if I take a pendulum and dip it in paint and wave it over a canvas, you know, does someone then be like, you're you're masquerading as a painter. (laughs) So there's like a real anxiety of like, well, the reason somebody is using text generating mechanisms is to fool someone else into thinking a certain kind of labor has been done when it hasn't Mm -hmm. been. And that's a way larger question about labor and value and art. So the really scary things about like, this text was written by a robot, you know, you're going to be out of work. And it's like, (laughs) you have to do a lot of work to get sensible text out of GPT-2 and 3. You know, there's a point with GPT-2 and 3 where the output like devolves into gibberish sometimes. And you're just like, well... (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You know, it needs some like massaging, right? right? (laughs) When you actually sort of sit down and put it together and there's like a disclaimer that says, you know, the robot's output has been edited for clarity. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're like, okay, well, someone had to do that. So like, do I, do I myself have some sort of apocalyptic anxieties about machines? Sometimes I do, you know, like I I grew up in, you know, the age of the Terminator and Matrix Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. But I also kind of don't. I see I see myself as like interacting with what a machine can do. And I do think in some ways those processes can be helpful. And there are forms of like helpful automation, mm-hmm. especially when, <laughs> you know, we live in bodies. So like the, the labor of producing work can actually be um, sometimes very painful. 
So, so I do think there's some benefits to it. I mean, I do feel like I really want to ask you to talk a little bit more about that because it sounds like in some ways the kind of thing underneath, like you're talking about energy, you're talking about input and like actual human labor. It makes me think of like, I remember seeing a, a panel of indigenous crip activists and artists and theater makers talking about like the space of the internet and land acknowledgements in digital spaces. And one of the things that was said in that conversation was just like, data centers are huge, huge, like resource intensive, so much energy, so many fossil fuels, and they take up a lot of land, they take up a lot of space. So, so much of kind of what we think of as like this ethereal, like, alternate reality, like space of the internet is actually like really grounded in in inland and resource extraction, labor extraction. Yeah, and I hear so much of that in what you're saying. And I yeah, like I mean, the cloud—the cloud, as it turns out, is a place you can visit. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, it's a place you can go to, and it's yeah. multiple places. It's dispersed. It's dispersed buildings, but it's also like fiber optics. Uh, it's cables. So, like, it is actually a physical thing, right? The cloud. When I teach programming to students, I have gotten just sort of like, well, if you can just like plug in, you know, some words and like press press play, and like then out comes your poem, then like you're cheating. I've been, che- I, I, the reader have been cheated into thinking that like mm-hmm. someone put their, you know, heart and soul into this. And it turns out they really didn't. And if they didn't, then it doesn't have value, right? It's not the real thing, you know? And so it's sort of like, oh, okay. So you're actually assessing poetry or you're assessing artwork based on what you believe someone has suffered right. and that there's like a certain, there's like a suffering quotient or there's a labor quotient, mm. you know, that they need to meet mm. in order for you to value it. Right. So like, you know, like this Sistine Chapel, like someone, you know, getting a repetitive stress injury painting God's corner is like, <laughs> that's art, <laughs> you know? Um, and it's, you know, and it's just sort—it's just sort of like you know, I'm like you need to do some internal work around why you think the way to value a thing is through this particular mechanism, right? Like that's very—it's very capitalist. We can only value something mm-hmm. if it's like no, you—you you had to have had experienced this thing, and it had to have caused you some kind of pain. And the only way you can reconcile that feeling with the world is to make this piece of art, which then hides that pain and suffering. Right. We don't see it, but we assume it's there, right? Somehow it's ghosting behind whatever it is that we're appreciating. And if we find out that thing is actually not there, then we get very mad. Right. Right. (laughs) And, you know, just like, what do you mean this didn't really happen to you? What do you mean this poem, like you made this up, you know? (laughs) And it's just sort of like, well, yes, that that can in fact happen. Someone can in fact make a thing up. And it just, it comes down to these complicated things about value and labor and work. But once I also feel like when students get into programming, by and large, it has never taken me as long to write a poem as it has for me to program something that will write a poem. Mm -hmm. So then like, I feel like once people kind of get into it, it's like, you want to program a poem, like go and learn a programming language and do it. And it's like, that is hours. Mm -hmm. That is hours and hours. And it is, it is frustrating. And it's like, it's the difference between like buying something built and buying and like building that shit yourself, you know, right. <laughs> but also like going and like 
you know, pressing the wood together and, and creating the instructions that you'll then follow to assemble it with the tools that you'll have to build mm-hmm. yourself, which are like, t- which is totally different than me sitting down with my moleskin mm-hmm. and being like, I'm going to write what I see, you know, um, <laughs> It's it facetiously, you know, but it's like the two things are, are, are both a kind of labor mm-hmm. and a kind of work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's so much easier to, to write a poem yeah. than right. it is the program one. It really is. That is so interesting to me because it reminds me of something the video game critic Bo Ruberg talks about, which is this kind of unexpected, I think, idea in the track of thinking about ways of understanding video games as being queer or ways of queering play when you encounter video games. Ruberg's idea is that speed running in a video game is is an inherently queer way of playing. Now, speed running is, of course, trying to get through an entire video game as quickly as possible and essentially using all kinds of cheat codes and breaking the game essentially to speed up how fast you can get from the beginning to the end. And it's it's kind of inherently in a category of what you might call cheating at a video game. <laughs> but like there's this whole kind of community that's built up around speedrunning. And while the community themselves, I think, wouldn't necessarily define itself as majority queer. Um, Ruberg has this idea of it being queer as a way of approaching a game because you're interacting with this with games chronologically differently. Mm. And similarly, even though you're cheating your way through the game, the amount of hours people put into being speedrunners <laughs> is more than probably <laughs> the game designers put into building the video game. Yep. untold hours. So like it's this strange relationship with time where you've disconnected from the normative narrative of a particular kind of effort curve. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like that so reminds me of what you're talking about. And it, it like it makes me really feel this strong impulse to say that there is something kind of inherently queer about digital poetics. It's, it's, I mean, like, I, I, because I think a lot about cars, <laughs> like, it, that just, it, that reminded me of, like, how much R&D it takes to make a car go fast, mm. you know, like, seriously, it's like, it takes so much time and effort to figure out how to do something quickly. It really does. And, like, there's a way in which, and maybe this is sort of associated with what you're talking about, maybe queering time, where, like, there are things that there's like, there's a different temporal scale almost. I feel like when it comes to programming and doing this kind of digital work where like you spend a lot of time to make something go fast. And like those two mm-hmm. things are like happening at once, you know? And it's like, yes, you can generate a novel in like literally a 10th of a second, but like the time it took to kind of get there is like, we spend a lot of time, a lot of labor a lot of slow time, a lot of slowness in order to do something very quickly. And I, and I kind of think that's always been the case. Yeah. It seems like part of what's going on there, it's just that noticing that is a strange experience, just connecting back with the story of your life as an artist of like noticing, noticing the presence of computers in your life, noticing that it's actually been this 
thing that's been really important to you and a source of creative interest, but then also just noticing the role it's played in your life. It's like maybe kind of a process of becoming aware of things that are already happening, but that we just have different narratives about how they were working or how they're supposed to work feels like like a deeper theme in, in what's going mm-hmm. on here to me. Yeah. It kind of makes me want to ask again about travesty generator. And I think one of the questions around like, okay, coding poetry is this huge investment of time and attention and sort of why this tool for this book, which is so much about violence against black people in America. And it's making me think in particular of the poem Three Last Words, which is the first poem in the book. And it references the police murders of Eric Garner and Freddie Gray. And, you know, it makes me think of many of of the poems in the book, of course. Um, This sort of like going slow, the accretion of processes and law and, and race craft over hundreds and hundreds of years of colonialism and American culture cultural production and labor to produce these moments in which people are murdered um, and violence is committed. You know, I, I, have, I, have a, I have a question for you that's like, why code for this book? And also, I, I sort of feel like I'm hearing, I'm maybe hearing you explain it already in, in the ways that you're talking about what code does. I guess like, why code for this book? Um, and again, this kind of comes back to this very personal thing where I, I was just like, I have to prove that I can do this. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have to prove that I, that I can mm-hmm. actually do this for myself, right? Um, it, because like, let's like this, it's, it's poetry, it's very niche poetry. Let's be honest. I did not think anyone was going to read this. Nobody, like, <laughs> nobody's like, let, like, national like nobody, nobody read like any of the previous books I wrote. <laughs> like, why would I think this would be any different? I'm being, I'm being dead serious, right? Like, you know, like when you look at the book sales and stuff, like nobody bought that. Nobody bought my books. You know what I mean? Which is like, it's fine. I didn't ever really think anybody would. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, because like this is this is poetry land. Um, Yes, poet power. <laughs> so, so one of the re- one of the things I wanted to do this is to kind of like prove to myself that I could do it. And also, mm. when I when I saw what people were doing with code and computation and poetics, and I just was sort of like, if you could if you could write about anything, why aren't you writing about this? <laughs> you know. Mm. And I think with with certain kinds of conceptual or experimental art practices, a lot of what they do is prove themselves, like. It's not like the outcome is the thing that's interesting. Mm -hmm. It's the method that was used to produce it that is interesting. And in that sense, in my mind, at least, I was like, then what this what this actually is, is a method that demonstrates itself. And I feel like a lot of early computation stuff, at least for me, a lot of it was like demonstrating math. (laughs) <laughs> all of this just to like show that a line is a line <laughs> you know <laughs> and you're just yeah. like okay yeah. <laughs> all of that just to like prove itself and I was sort of like well you know it was important to me to be like well if I'm gonna do this like it ha- what am I gonna talk about what mm. exactly am I going to shape using this tool and so at the t- particular time for me there's just really nothing more important right now than talking about mm-hmm. black liberation and anti-black violence. I was like, there just isn't anything more important right now um, for me to be talking about. Yeah. And it's something like I, all of my previous work talks about race and talks about gender, but it does so in ways that 
a lot of readers have failed to identify. And that's not necessarily their fault because the way in which I've chosen to approach it in some in some ways is, is less legible than how it typically gets approached, I think. I guess as an example, I have friends who sometimes t- teach my previous books and report that their students are surprised when they find out that I am not white <laughs> and that, that, that I am indeed, uh, you know, a person of African descent. And I'm like, yeah, I could see that, right? Because the kinds of cues in the work that would let you know that what's being talked about is a question of race, right, are not available to a lot of people. So part of me was like, I want to use these tools as a compositional method to write a book that cannot be confused for anything else, <laughs> right? Like yeah. there can be no way that you get out of this book and think that I'm not talking about blackness and race. Like that just cannot happen, mm-hmm. you know? So I was like, this is, you know, I wanted to write a, you know, to make a book that was unmistakable, where it's just like, you're not going to walk away from this and be like, oh, I wonder if this 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 writer is concerned about race in any way. So, so for me, it was sort of like, if I'm going to be using these tools, it can't just be to kind of be like, look how cool this is. Look, uh, I, you know, GPT-2 or 3 prints coherent text. Like, so what? <laughs> you know, right. if it's not going to be deliberately politically directed, then, I'm, then I don't use them. Mm. So cool. Yeah, I... I feel like this reminds me so much of how in creative writing classrooms, we often get handed down, I I don't know, like a certain set of tools for writing an acceptable poem, quote unquote, or what someone would call a publishable short story. And, you know, in a lot of cases, those are tools that are not meant for us at all, but it's impossibly difficult to realize that's the case. Um, or at least it was for me until I found other ways of understanding my own body, my own gender. And eventually I kind of brought those ways of knowing back into the writing. Um, so m- maybe speaking of experiences of knowing one's body and how we write our bodies on the page, we were curious to ask you about your experience as a queer Black athlete. You know, we have this image of the coder as an inside person, kind of like, surrounded by screens and flickering light. Um, But you are super active outdoors. And, you know, Nino and I both follow you on Instagram. And we've seen you ice climbing, floating down fast moving rivers. And your poetry includes wilderness experience, as well as meditations on the line between self and stimulation. So we were really curious how you see these two modes of existence as being connected. Where do physical experiences lead you when you return to explorations in the digital world and vice versa? Yes, that is a great question. Um, I mean, it's it's funny, or maybe it isn't. <laughs> Where, right, like the coder or programmer as an inside person and... And this is probably why I am, why my sort of goals are really simple with coding in some ways is because like the time, the time it takes, right? Like, because I'm not, this is not, you know, my, my quote unquote day job is not computer programming or anything like that, you know? So it's like, for me to program something, I actually have to sacrifice a lot of free time and mm-hmm. quite simply, I'm not willing to do it. I'm not because I do love the outdoors and I love extreme things. 
<laughs> or things that like <laughs> have like a very adventurous or extreme element to them. And that is like the other part of my life story as, as a person that I've always been, which is like, I've always just been like obsessed with certain things, you know, and, and even though I didn't necessarily live them out, mm. just like from a young age, I was fascinated by like skiing and mountains and exploration. And that was not something that I really got to live out as a kid. Cause mm. I mean, if anything, we were the bookish computer family. Nobody like mm -hmm. nobody in my family was going to be like, let's go get on some skis, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because like one, it was like, that's dangerous. And two, that's expensive. And three, also like I, I'm in a mixed race family, but it was kind of like there were no black people doing that shit. There just weren't like you didn't mm -hmm. see it. It was like not a thing black people did. Mm -hmm. It just seemed like this ice climbing or mountaineering was like, that is something that white people on another planet are doing. Right. That is just like not something that, um, you know, but it was always like this thing that fascinated me. It's interesting because like once I left home, I kept on moving to like more and more like remote <laughs> or mountainous places, even though I didn't know anything about like hiking or the outdoors. And I, I tried my best to kind of get into it. Um, you know, I took mm -hmm. up snowboarding at, at a young age and that that was that has always kind of been my first love. And then mm -hmm. through the pandemic, I joined I joined Outdoor Afro, which, <laughs> you know, if you don't know Outdoor Afro, look it up. And I just got super lucky and blessed that like where I live is, you know, very close to some pretty intense, adventurous mountains. And I got linked up with some like really adventurous, outdoorsy black people. Because I was just, you know, part of what keeps people, you know, people of color away from this stuff is that it's like super white. And some of the more extreme stuff we do, like ice climbing and ski touring is like hella white. But mm -hmm. it's, you know, but it's funny, it comes down to, in a lot of ways, sort of like being an adult who my adulthood is about like giving myself opportunities <laughs> that I didn't have, or couldn't take advantage of mm -hmm. as a kid. That's what I'm using my time for. And I'm a very physical person. Which is why I think like sitting still and coding and things like that is actually very difficult for me to do. I want to be moving. I'd mm -hmm. much rather be moving. I'd much rather be on a bike. I'd much rather be, you know, ice climbing. Um, and there's, there's like a, there's that sense of adventure and accomplishment, right? When you're like, you're doing something that feels really kind of like, I don't say like legendary, but like that is legendary for you. <laughs> You know, mm -hmm. where it's like, this is an extreme difficult thing that I'm doing. And it's, you know, you ask like, how are the modes of existence connected? For me, coding is a very difficult thing for me to do um, because I just was not socialized or educated in that. It's very difficult. And it's difficult in this like really mental way um, and very frustrating in that way. And so I feel like I have to balance it out with actually being able to move my body from one place to another in a way that is also difficult, but in which mm -hmm. that difficulty is something <laughs> that I can like physically feel and physically like work through and achieve, right? Like I'm, I'm able to like, <laughs> you know, go on an ice climb up a gully and like get to the top. And for me, that's like, 
always going to be so much better, <laughs> I think, than like, you know, than getting a program to work. Uh, maybe not always, you know, but in some <laughs> in some ways, it's like I need to be able. I need to be able to feel right difficulty. I need to. I need to be able to choose a kind of problem that my entire body works on, mm. right? As opposed to a kind of problem that only one part of my body is working on or only a couple parts of my body are working on. And so like, I, I need to balance it out. Like, cause I actually think sitting at the computer and coding for hours is an extreme. It's yeah. extreme. Yeah. We're not really made to be, to, to do that. Right. It, and also like ice climbing is an extreme. Right. So it's like, I don't really have a middle ground. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I also, I, and I'm, of course, like, I love it, but I love disconnecting and being like, I absolutely have to be away from the computer. I have to, I have to mm -hmm. put up the away message. I have to be unreachable. And what I love about something mm -hmm. like ice climbing is like, you are so fucking unreachable. <laughs> you know, like, like, I am not answering the phone. I am not getting an email. <laughs> I'm not checking. You know, it's just like, you cannot be reached. You know, in some places, like, like there's no cell service. So it's like, no. I am just, I'm very, very away. <laughs> and that, you know, and I think that's so good, you know? Yeah. It's like, here I am programming and blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, I'm on top of a mountain gripping an ax, you know? Oh, I love that so much. It's, I mean, it has, it has given me, um, and in again, to shout out outdoor Afro, it had, that has given me like the most joy right um in in my life i think of in the recent years greater than like anything else just the whole idea of like living your life so that you can cause the the lights that you wanted to see light up when you were a kid <laughs> to light up in your adulthood in their various ways is pretty wonderful too it's a it's a real it's a pleasure yeah you know and, and <laughs> again it's a simple thing but when i think about like again, to sort of like, I only have so many hours in the day, right? Am mm -hmm. I, when I think like opportunity costs and just sort of like, where, where am I going to spend my time? What is, what is worth more to me to like program a million lights or a whole bunch of stuff and like come up with like the most flawless, amazing program that can do all these things. If it's a choice between that and like going up in the mountains with some other black people and we're going to do this climb, like it's a no brainer. For me, for me, it just, it just is, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. And so it's like, why am I not, you know, my, my next book coming out doesn't have anything to do with programming, <laughs> you know, <laughs> very little, you know, and it's, I think people are expecting me to like keep doing other kinds of, you know, computation stuff. And I will, but when I think about like, where is it that I'm actually going to be putting my energy? It's like, I turn off the computer and just like spend time with my body. Ugh, I identify with that kind of flip-flopping between the two modes and different types of extremities so, so much. So speaking of this kind of like back and forth between physical reality and uh, and cyberspace, whatever, whatever that actually is, imagine that you're waking up from a long sleep in a goo bath where you've been plugged into an imaginary metaverse, something like the Matrix, and there's a crew of enterprising hackers who have rescued you um, and brought you into the real world the quote unquote real world. But unlike in the matrix, what you find in meat space isn't a gritty reality fraught with machine human war and endless 
meals of protein sludge. Instead, <laughs> it's somewhere that is really awesome. So as you're waking up into this physical reality, what do you see and who's there to welcome you home? That is such a beautiful question. Um, and just pondering it like makes me emotional. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, like I think honestly, like it's, let me see. I'm, I have, a, I'm very privileged and I have a lot of opportunities that my parents did not have. And my dad was a first-generation immigrant from the Netherlands after the war. And my mom is she's a Black woman from Baltimore, grew up in abject poverty. And there are a lot of opportunities she did not have. And same with my dad. You know, he, he did not have a lot of opportunities either. And there are a lot of things that I know they want to see and do. Mm. And so that, that, that world, <laughs> that pretty awesome mm -hmm. world is being able to like, you know, my mom wants to see mountains, you know, she wants to travel. The things I do are things that like, she growing up in like the 40s, 50s and 60s would never have gotten the chance to do. Mm. And she went through everything that she went through so that I could like, you know, be like, I'm gonna tackle a problem. That problem is gonna be climbing a mountain, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Which in like, for someone who like lived through Jim Crow, that just sounds so, outrageous. Mm. So I, I think like that awesome world is being able to take them with me. Mm. <laughs> that gets me. <laughs> me too. <laughs> yeah. I just like need a minute. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lilian Thank you. It has been a pleasure. This has been Queers at the End of the World. Next time on Queers at the End of the World, get out your hexadecimal dictionaries and your favorite extraterrestrial potato varietals because we're talking about Andy Weir's The Martian. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Our show art is by the fabulous Ellie Yanagasawa. Get in touch for your own commission at Ellie the Cosmic Jelly. The music for this episode is La Fin des Ericotes by Tintamare. The show is produced and edited by me, Nino McQuown, with marketing and technical wizardry by Nat Mesnard. We'd love to hear from you. Find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash queers at the end of the world. Our website is queerworlds.com, and you can email us directly at queerworldspodcast at gmail.com. Good luck out there, dear hearts.